From McMinnville, Oregon, this is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that knows when the porridge is too hot, too cold, or just right. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg. And today's title is Habitable Zones. Hey, Chad. Good afternoon, Michael. What are we talking about today? Well, I feel like in the last year or so, there's been kind of an uptick in the number of news reports of unidentified flying objects. You know, you get these little grainy videos of some sort of like a targeting reticle or something on a little speck on a screen and the person who's filming it saying, oh my gosh, look how fast this, fast this thing's moving and how sure, much yeah. it's turning. And, and then it makes its way onto a newscast. And so I, there's been this uptick in, I guess, the incidence of those kinds of films and what often accompanies coverage of those kinds of things is bringing on some physicist or astronomer or astrophysicist and asking them, uh, what are the possibilities of life elsewhere in the universe and intelligent life elsewhere? And so there are a lot of different ideas about that question and how to approach that question. Yeah. And so I thought that might be kind of a fun thing to talk about. Yeah. And I looked this up and realized that it was about 60 years ago Mm -hmm. that the first people seriously looking into what's now called SETI, S-E-T-I, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, really began in earnest. Mm. There were two guys who led this conference in particular. One was Carl Sagan, who yeah. he's probably the most famous astronomer back you know, in the 70s and 80s. He was very famous. Sure. Um, and another guy named Frank Drake. Mm-hmm. So Drake came up with an equation for he claims later that it was more just to kind of open the conversation of like, how much life would we expect to find out there? You know, how likely is it that we would ever find anything? And he mm-hmm. came up with an equation and there's a lot of different variables in there. And a lot of them are just complete conjecture. And so I'm going to give sort of a simplified version of that. But it's basically asking like, well, how many stars are there and um, how many of them have planets going around them? OK, what fraction of these planets might have life on them. Okay. And then what fraction of those might have what we would call complex life or intelligent life, you know, that might actually be able to communicate back to us, you know, have long distance pen pals and so forth. <laughs> so each time you're getting kind of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. Yeah. And I broke this down into like just three fractions, but his original equation had a lot more steps in there. But if the, if the number you're starting with is huge, yeah. which is like billions and billions, I mean, how, how many stars exist? I mean, well, I mean, just in the Milky Way galaxy, there's millions and millions. There's like, I think a hundred million or something like that. Uh-huh. It's greater than at least three. Uh-huh. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> And in recent years, there have been a few satellite telescopes that have been launched, in particular, something called the Kepler satellite, mm. which is searching for planets that are orbiting around other stars. And from that work, it seems that it's very common to have planets going around stars, that very likely most stars that we see have at least a handful of planets orbiting around them. Right. And I feel like you said that this SETI program began in earnest like 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we've learned quite a bit in that period of time, like our view of the number of stars that are out there, the number of galaxies that are out there. Yeah. And then the idea of, well, might there be planets around some of these stars? I feel like all of that has only increased. True. A lot since this was first launched. And I think that related to this thing, this Drake equation of trying to figure out the probability of life and sentient life elsewhere was first based on 
a much smaller conception of how big the universe was, maybe. And now with, with this huge expansion in the number of stars and confirmation of lots of planets, that has served to kind of increase perhaps the sense of, oh, wow, based on this Drake equation, we really should be expecting to find life and intelligent yeah. life elsewhere because those numbers have been going up and up and up. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. But so I think it's worth spending some time today trying to figure out what the fractions might be for finding life and where might we best look for life. Yeah. And in terms of where you might look for life, what are the essentials, I guess? Yeah. So. Yeah. And we should say right off the bat here that we have an extreme bias for what life needs to look like. Uh -huh. um, because as far as planets go, we only know of one planet that has life on it. That would be Earth, by the way. Yeah. Um, and so we have a tendency to frame all of our conceptions of what life looks like based around what we see around us. And so what do we know about our life here? Well, we all need water. There's, you know, certain temperature ranges that we think we can survive in. And, you know, we need oxygen to breathe. Well, not all, not everything needs oxygen, I guess. But well, yeah. And in fact, the first living things were poisoned by oxygen yeah. on planet Earth. So but even though we have that tendency, even just looking on Earth, life can be a lot more extreme than what we would normally think of. Isn't mm -hmm. that true? Yeah. So life, you can find living things in some pretty unlikely locations. For example, under extreme pressures in ocean depths, you can find microbes and even small animals that are adapted to mm. extreme depths, sometimes really deep into the earth itself. I mean, I'm not talking like down into the mantle or the core or anything, but I'm, mm -hmm. I'm talking about like deep into the bedrock, much deeper than you might have guessed there would be any sort of source of energy or source of nutrients. There have been extremophiles found. Yeah. And by the way, extremophiles is the broad category for life that survives in some of these extreme conditions. Yeah. And not only survives, but thrives and is limited to like that's where they live and they can't live anywhere mm. else. So they, de they depend on those conditions. And some other extreme conditions are places like hot springs and near volcanic vents in the ocean like if you go to yellowstone national park and you see some of their hot springs and stuff you might notice that there seems to be sort of like a a film like a brightly colored film of various colors mm -hmm. in some of their hot springs and that's microbial life so these tiny little members of this group called the archaeans typically is the the group that they're on they're not bacteria they're the other big group of single-celled microbes that also do not have a nucleus. So single-celled microbes that are not bacteria are called right. archaeans? Yes. Okay. That, that also do not have a discrete nucleus. Okay. Yeah. So to distinguish, because there are single-celled eukaryotes that do have a discrete nucleus, and that, that's a whole other third group. But anyway. Uh, and But you're telling me that some of these actually live in rock like inside of rocks right yeah somehow get into like tiny little fissures in the rocks and are able to eke out an existence as lithophiles secreting enzymes that actually make use in some way of the mineral contents perhaps as a resource or even perhaps as some sort of part of the energy transformation process hmm. in their cellular metabolism and so i guess the point in talking about these is that we need to have a pretty expansive view of the range of conditions that life can exist in. Mm -hmm. And so, Both, so 
high pressure, low pressure, high mm-hmm. temperature. There's also low temperature stuff. Like yeah. there's there's life under the ice in the Arctic regions, right? Yep, yep. It's below it, but it's it's salt water, so it's it's actually colder than freezing, and yet things are surviving. Mm-hmm. Okay, so life the limits of what we would think that life could survive through is a lot broader. Right. You've also talked about, and we had a show recently where we talked about how, well, actually you just mentioned just a little bit ago that the early earth didn't have a lot of oxygen. It had sulfur and and other things. And so it can survive even with those gases and so forth. Right. But that doesn't seem to be necessarily as true with complex life, right? By complex, I mean like multicellular organisms or something. Yeah. There seems to be something about as far as I know, all complex multicellular organisms on planet Earth require oxygen at least a little bit hmm. and have metabolisms that use oxygen as part of it. And so that also seems to be the case for the history of life on planet Earth. It wasn't until after oxygen levels in the atmosphere had increased drastically that we finally actually start seeing some of the unicellular groups moving towards multicellularity. Hmm. And so is that because that helps pull energy out of different sources or what is the oxygen necessary for? Well, on the mitochondria, So what's happening on the membrane of the mitochondria is electrons are being passed back and forth and back and forth. And as a result, they're pulling hydrogen ions to just outside that membrane, creating this gradient. So when the hydrogen ions go back in, they're turning this little, it almost looks like a turnstile that is taking molecules of ADP and a phosphate group and slapping them together. And now you've got ATP. And so that's the major site of energy production in the form of this molecule called ATP. And And ATP is what our cells then will break apart. That's right. But the thing is, after that electron has been going back and forth across the membrane of the mitochondria, oxygen is the terminal thing that catches that electron at the end. Okay. All right. It's the last step is that electron being captured by oxygen molecules. And so if you don't have a catcher, then it short circuits the whole thing. Exactly. And so that's why all of these so-called eukaryotes that have mitochondria can yield a a whole bunch more usable energy. And so now you've got cells that can do a lot more different kinds of things. All right. So so it seems like we need oxygen for this. Uh-huh. Any other elements that we need? Well, it seems that carbon is probably important, right? I mean, we're talking about our, our biases yeah. based on what we see around us and all life that we are aware of is carbon-based. That's probably not an accident. Yeah. I mean, you can probably explain better than I can the reasons for this, but I'm I'm aware that carbon can form four bonds, I guess, with other things, including right. itself, which opens up a range of possibilities for different kinds of molecules. Right. So like carbon can have, you can have diamond. Diamonds uh-huh. are just made out of carbon. You can have, what's dear to me is graphite and graphene, but you can also make these rings of alcohol and chains of molecules that make all the proteins and make, you know, everything that we are is basically a lot of carbon and carbon is unique in that ability to do that. So yeah, so it seems reasonable that we would need carbon and oxygen. What else would we need? One of the things that we're often looking for in other celestial bodies as good places to look are places that might have water and liquid water in some sort. Oh, it has to be liquid. Well, I would think so. I mean, right. Because one of the things that makes it special for life is that it serves as a a good solvent and a good medium within which biochemical reactions can happen. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if it's frozen or if it's 
as steam, then right. it can't do. Okay, so we need we need not just water. We need liquid water. Okay. Right. How about energy? Well, yeah. So you would need some sort of energy coming into the system, and the most obvious source for that would be some sort of nearby star. And I suppose there are some organisms on planet Earth that get their energy as a result of the heat that's produced by what's going on inside the core of planet Earth, like communities that live near hydrothermal vents in the bottom of the oceans. But that's probably not what we're talking about if we're talking about more complex life. So you can get some energy from just the thermal energy from the vent or something like that. Yeah. So presumably we use a lot more energy than we could get just from siphoning off a thermal vent. Right, right. Got it. Okay. So for complex life, at least here on earth, that would be the sun. Yes. Okay. I mean, plants have figured out photosynthesis and they they figured out how to grab energy from the sun. And then animals have mostly figured out how to steal it from them. That's right. We, plants figured out how to get it from the sun and we figured out how to get it from plants. Smart. Yeah. <laughs> and probably the, the last thing we really need to focus on then would be time, I guess, right? We recently talked about how, at least here on earth, I mean, the earth is over 4 billion years old and we're here now. Like we, we haven't been around as humans certainly that long. And, but it, it even took a couple of billion years for the jump to the complex life, right? That Yeah. So what earth is what? 4.4 or something billion years old. Sure. So better than what? 80 or so percent of the entire history of planet earth had already passed until we started getting even the most basic of the animals. Yeah. And then starting to get to larger big brain vertebrates, primates like us. I mean, that that's basically just a finger snap yeah. in history of life on the planet. And so I don't know exactly what to think about what that tells us in terms of how long we should expect it to take on other planets. Yeah. I mean, does it by necessity take that long to get to more complex life? Or was there something about how the process unfolded on planet Earth that made it slower than it otherwise might be? Or or I don't know, maybe it went faster than it otherwise. Yeah. Have, we don't have a lot of data on that. Yeah. And again, we're talking about just one planet. So it's, it's hard to extrapolate yeah. from that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so astronomers are trying to get some estimate of what that should look like. And they have sort of defined some things called habitable zones. Previously, when they were just talking to themselves, they would call this the Goldilocks zone. Like the planet can't be too hot and it can't be too cold. It has to be just right for life. And this meets to the liquid water piece, right? That we have to be just in the right spot. You know, if we're too close to the sun, like Venus is, Venus is way too hot because it's so close to the sun. It's just too hot to have any liquid water on a surface. But if we go out too far away, like Mars, Mars gets a lot less sunlight than we do because it's so far away. And so it's much colder. And so there's any ice that's there is frozen primarily at the poles, I think. Okay. And so back in the day, they called those the Goldilocks zones. And somebody decided along the way that that was too cute. And <laughs> so now they're called habitable zones. Uh-huh. But yeah, so we it seems like we need to have a, a star in order to provide really both two things. We need it for the heat in order to have the liquid water. And we also need it for likely some sort of energy source so that the cells can do their things, right? Right. So, right. okay. So that's great for our solar system. We can definitely map that out, that if we were in the orbit of Venus, that's too close. If we're in the orbit of Mars. So Venus is about like three quarters as close as we are to the sun. And Mars is like one and a half times farther than we are. Okay, so we are something like 90 million miles from the sun, 90-ish million. You probably know the distance in kilometers, right? Actually, I know the distance in light minutes. (laughs) 
okay, let me get out my phone and see if I can use the little converter app to get from light minutes to miles here. Yeah. Is it, what is it like eight light minutes? 8.3 light minutes. Yeah. 8.3 light minutes. Well, and then, you know, the uh, speed of light. So yep. can't you just do that math in your head? <laughs> I'm asking the internet. So 94 million miles, 150 kilometers. Okay. So I guess my reason for thinking about that is you said that Venus was about three quarters of the way. Mm -hmm. and so we're talking what, 70 million miles or so. Sure. Just round number. And then Mars is, what did you say? 50%? 50% more. So, okay. And so that's like a hundred and say 40 million yeah. miles. And so that in terms of how far you drive a car, that that's a pretty big band. Yeah. But in, in terms of like the overall solar system, that's like the width of a pen stroke. Yeah. So suddenly we're already sort of drastically narrowing down the parameters within which we might expect to find just life. Well, it's thought that there might be simple life okay. elsewhere. So simple life could be farther away. So for instance, a lot of astronomers are excited about one of the moons of Jupiter called mm. Europa. And why is that? So the outer surface is all ice, uh, ice water, water ice. water ice. Yeah. Okay. And it's a thick shell of that, but it's believed that it's liquid underneath there. Hmm. And the reason that it is liquid is actually something called tidal friction. In its orbit around Jupiter, sometimes it's closer, sometimes it's farther away. And so that actually is flexing the entire moon back and forth hmm. and kind of warming it up. It's okay. Like Mr. Miyagi. Oh, rubbing hand. Oh, got it. Okay. So, so if you were at the bottom of those oceans, would it be sort of constant earthquakes? Is it that kind of thing? Yeah, that seems reasonable. I mean, Europa quakes, but yeah, that seems reasonable. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay. But that okay. would also be an energy source in itself, right? So oh, that's true. So there are some people proposing sending satellites to Europa and trying to see if we could drill down and, and maybe see if there's any interesting life in the oceans of Europa. Yeah, that would be awesome. But again, this is the question of complex life. Sure. So we might be able to find some sort of life there, but nobody is expecting, because again, you would need enough energy to make multicellular organisms. Nobody thinks that they would ever find a civilization living under <laughs> underneath there. Right. Kind of understanding like where Venus is, where Mars is, Venus too close, Mars too far away. Earth is in this belt that's right in this relatively narrow zone where we've got sufficient energy, liquid water. Yeah. But that also all depends on the qualities of our particular sun, right? Yeah. So these distances that we're talking about, if we were looking at a star exactly the same size as our sun, uh -huh. they would match up. Now, if the star is bigger than our sun, you would just like bump out the zone, right? You would say, okay, well, it's a bigger star. That means it's hotter. That means we'd have to be a little bit farther away from it to be in a region where it's just right, you know? Uh -huh. And if it's a smaller star, we'd have to be quite a bit closer in order to get the same number of photons per second or whatever. Okay. So that calculation in itself is straightforward, but it actually gets tricky okay. it, when you think more deeply about it because, so those are the limits for when we would expect to have liquid water. Uh -huh. But we had a bunch of other things that we were just talking about as what we would need, right? For instance, time. The larger stars die a lot faster than smaller stars do. Hmm. I think of it like a bonfire, right? If I have a camping fire and I'm just throwing a log on every once in a while, I can keep it going the entire night. But if I put all the logs on at once and just, then uh -huh. it'll all burn through pretty quickly. Yeah. It'll burn hotter and you'll have to be further away from it to be comfortable. Yep. But then by midnight, it's out. Yeah, exactly. 
And okay. so our sun will probably last through its entire cycle about 10 billion years. But bigger stars can fizzle out much, much faster than that. Define much faster. Well, I mean, the really big stars could be hundreds of millions of years or so. Okay. But a star that is twice as bright as the sun would be one or two billion years. Okay. When you compare that to the entire history of life on Earth, life was still extremely simple on Earth. Yeah. yeah. As in single-celled. Yeah. Time might be an issue for the bigger stars that maybe things just didn't have time to 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 form bigger stuff. What about stars that are, you mentioned something about smaller stars then. What's the problem with that? It seems like too big. That makes sense to me. But do smaller stars have a longer life cycle? Smaller stars do. And so that might be a a good place to look. The problem is that you have to be closer to those stars. Okay. So not only are you increasing the amount of light, you're also increasing the number of, you know, subatomic particles shooting at you. And you also have the issue that so our moon is always facing us. We're always seeing just one side of the moon. Uh-huh. You've heard of the dark side of the moon that besides being an awesome album. Yes. It's the side of the moon that we don't see from Earth ever. The uh-huh. moon is always rotating in just the right way so that we only ever see the one side of it. And so if you're closer to your star, then that tends to happen faster. And so like eventually in another five or 10 billion years, if the sun lasted that long, Earth would eventually do that as well. We'd only face one side towards the sun. Oh, okay. So what you're saying is our rotation is actually slowing down just a little bit all the time. Yeah. And so for instance, Mercury, which is the closest to the sun, is well on its way to doing that. It's definitely on its way to slowing down to the point where if we checked in on it in another billion years, that it would only be facing one way, I'm sure. So the the same face would be facing the sun all the time. Yeah. Okay. And so that one face would get way too hot. Okay. And then the opposite face. That happens when two bodies are orbiting each other relatively closely. Yeah. And so for this theoretical planet around a smaller, more long lived, less bright star, it would become, start showing its same face to that sun all the time. Yeah. And I'm guessing that would cause problems for that side that's facing the sun all the time. I would imagine what would happen is, so the front side would be way too hot and the backside would be way too cold. Uh And as a result, one would expect that, let's say it was covered in ocean, that the front side, the oceans would boil off and all that steam would then go around to the backside where it would freeze and (laughs) not come back, you know? So so then we'd be this lopsided planet. <laughs> like just like a huge ice mountain on the on the backside. Yeah. And you could also imagine like the atmosphere doing that as well, right? If the temperatures are low enough that any oxygen or anything else would also freeze back there. And mm-hmm. so you'd have this barren wasteland on the front and then everything stacked behind the back. Yeah. So as we're finding all these new planets, that's something else we have to pay attention to is, is how close are the planets to the stars. And actually, we also have to pay attention to the size of the planets themselves. That oh. if we had a planet the size of, say, Jupiter, even if it had water on it. And was a rocky planet as opposed to a gas giant. Yeah. So that you could actually stand on the surface. Okay. But the water on there, the gravity would be so strong that the water would not behave like liquid water. It would basically be a, in some sort of a crystallized form. Really? Yeah. But it would not be the same property of ice that we would think of. It would be a a different thing entirely. But in that case, it would be hard to imagine that life could survive in that situation. But, you know, maybe extremophiles would exist. It reminds me of a Kurt Vonnegut book. Oh, about the water that... The Ice Nine, I think is what it's called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Anyway, okay. Yeah, so there's a lot of variables that are still sort of up in the air about all that sort of thing. Uh But then it's, it's actually interesting also to think about what we need beyond just our own star. Like we actually need the elements as well. And so then that actually leads to, I've been reading recently about some habitable zones 
within the galaxy itself. Oh. And so the Milky Way galaxy is sort of this spiral shape where we're really sort of like on the spokes of a wheel that are spiraling around the center of the Milky Way. And our solar system is actually pretty far out on that. We're sort of in the middle of the spoke. We're not too close and we're not too far away. And that raises the question of whether we need to be where we are as well. So galactically, there might be a bit of a Goldilocks zone. Yeah. yeah. And tell me a little bit more what that has to deal with, because it, it doesn't seem like it has anything to do with proximity to a star as a source of heat being too close or too far. And so you mentioned something about the materials. What? Yeah. So we mentioned that we need for ourselves, we need carbon and oxygen. Uh And quite honestly, to have the planet be a rocky planet like it is, silicon is probably the most common in the rocks on the crust at least. But then we also have a lot of iron and some heavier metals. And we also have much heavier things like uranium and so forth. But but in order to get all these different metals, our sun is probably a fourth or fifth generation star. Okay. Meaning that we had a really big star that went through its entire life cycle very quickly. So being so big, it happened very quickly and it blew up in the supernova and it produced oxygen and carbon and so forth in its core and then blew that out. Okay. And in the process of that also made some heavier elements as well. And then probably another star formed from the remnants of that, but was still very big, went through a supernova and can imagine that happening several times. And then you you finally have our sun, which has a certain percentage of heavy metals and a certain percentage of carbon and oxygen available for our planet. So all of the elements that coalesce to form our solar system were, I guess, initially in this large cloud mm-hmm. in a, kind of our relative position in the Milky Way galaxy. And they were close enough that gravity started to pull them together. Yep. And so what you're saying is that the composition of that particular cloud, because of the multiple generations of the stars that came before, had produced this blend of carbon and lots of silicon and oxygen and yep. iron. But basically you need several several stars to form and then to blow up in order to have Earth. Okay. And so it turns out that's really easy to do like at the center of the Milky Way because there's a whole bunch of stars nearby. And so there, a lot of those stars tend to be bigger. A lot of those stars tend to blow up quickly and spread out their material and so forth. So a lot of those stars near the center of the Milky Way tend to have higher concentrations of these elements that we need. Ah, but there's a problem there because since they're doing that so much, then that's also very destabilizing, right? right. <laughs> like if, if we had a, a supernova happen next door, uh-huh. that would greatly affect us here on Earth as well. So for instance, our nearest star to us where we are right now is four light years away, meaning that it takes light from that star to travel four years to reach us here. But in the Milky Way, in the center, some of them are only a few light days away. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, so so they're very close together. And so if one of them had a supernova, that's going to destabilize any forming life nearby. Okay. And so that could be too quick and too destabilizing for anything to actually form that close to the center of the Milky Way. Okay. And so then maybe you say, well, let's go farther out then. Well, that sounds great. But then we have mostly smaller stars out there. So there's a lot less of these reactions happening. And so there's a lot less availability of carbon and oxygen and all the okay. other elements that we would need. So it may not be possible to find life far out either. Okay. And so that's why people are talking about that. Maybe in the the Milky Way itself, maybe we have to have a band here where there's enough probability to have the right elements available to you. Uh huh. And in some of these places where you've got stars that are close enough together, are there any systems where like two stars are orbiting each other that might share a solar system? Is that... It's 
Theoretically uh, possible. possible. I mean, the, the easiest way for that to work would be if you had planets really close to one and basically uh -huh. orbiting that one. Okay. Or if you were outside of both so that you're orbiting both of them simultaneously. So like what those planets would be orbiting would be sort of like the center of mass of the two of them. Yeah. And so that seems like functionally what that would mean is sometimes you're much closer to one of the stars. Right. Right. And then other times you're way farther away. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like there'd be really wide swings in the conditions on a planet like that. Yeah. So that would be a little bit tricky to imagine having life be able to survive in that way. So like Tatooine would be hard to imagine. <laughs> but maybe it's true. I mean, Tatooine is a desert, so it's possible that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Overall, then, I mean, the, the universe itself is about 14 billion years old. So that's a lot of time for a lot of these things to happen. The universe itself is huge. And so there are back when Carl Sagan and, and Frank Drake came up with this equation, we knew there were other galaxies, but we didn't know there were other galaxies. Right. So there are so many galaxies out there that it would not surprise me if there was life in several of those galaxies. Mm -hmm. And by life, you just mean including microbial, real basic life. Yeah. OK. Or even complex. I, I could I could certainly imagine complex life in another galaxy uh -huh. and possibly even there may be another few stars in the Milky Way that could have complex life. Mm -hmm. What's interesting, though, is to think through how good a communication we could possibly have with them, though. Uh -huh. I mean, I keep using these units of, of light years because you can say, well, light takes this long to get there and, and you can just do the math and put that into miles or whatever units you want. But it's very convenient to think about it in terms of light years, because then you can say like Alpha Centauri which is the nearest star to us is about four light years away. And so it takes four years for that light to reach us. Mm -hmm. So even if I sent some signal to Alpha Centauri, it's uh -huh. going to take four years for it to reach them. And then for them to send it back, that's another four years. So eight years, the soonest you could possibly hope to hear anything. Yeah. Uh -huh. And that's the nearest to us. I mean, we're talking about very, very big distances very, very quickly. The Milky Way galaxy itself is 100,000 light years across, which is very, very big, right? I mean, so whether we could ever actually have communication with very many of these civilizations or ever know about them. Yeah. It's hard to imagine. That time element is really interesting to keep in mind because even if SETI were to pick something up, say, yeah. the chances that that civilization still exists are probably pretty small for this reason that you're talking about. Yeah. And if we're talking about civilizations ending, it's not necessarily that a civilization just destroys itself, but it, it is also, I mean, the star itself could do something or there could be a, a supernova nearby, which destabilizes everything, just kills the entire planet. And, you know, or a massive asteroid impact or... Yeah. Mass extinction events are, when we're talking about billions and billions of years, we're talking about a high probability of something like that happening at some point. Right. So, um, yeah, the time question is a big one as well. Mm -hmm. This is why we're not going to be invited back to the... <laughs> The alien festival. Yeah. And those are all interesting things to think about in understanding this Drake equation and how the last 60 years of research in astronomy helps us get a better handle on just how many stars there are, but also to really take into consideration that it's not just, oh, it's a star. On average, stars have X number of planets. And on average, Y percent of those seem to be, quote, Earth-like, right? That it, yeah. That's not enough. Yeah. We also have to be taking into considerations all these other things you were talking about, like exactly how far away they are, exactly what kind of star we're talking about because of the time aspect of it and what that says about the Goldilocks zone and how long that's been there and also where it is in the 
galaxy. I hadn't really thought about that before, but that makes yeah. a lot of sense. It's not just like any old star, any old where is likely to be a good candidate. So I don't know, maybe that helps us focus where we ought to be looking. Well, I mean, for my side of things, talking with you and the biological side of all this stuff, you know, the extremophiles that uh -huh. maybe that actually expands it back out a little bit. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, it's pretty amazing the conditions that living things can eke out an existence in. And so, but I, I have to wonder if you don't need at least some decent conditions, decent set of conditions for life to first get a start. Because we talked about all of these really extreme kinds of habitats that life has adapted into, but it's my hunch that that's probably not the kinds of conditions where life would first arise. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. But these yeah. are all like really interesting questions and fun to think about. Yeah. Oh, cool. Thanks. This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rodeo Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and a rating and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you have questions or thoughts that you would like us to ponder, email us at crisscrossingsci.gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Or just hit us up on Facebook. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.